people of God had been in exile, they're coming home to Jerusalem. They see the steps leading into the temple, and as they ascend each one, they pray and give praise to God. They teach us how to pray and praise God in difficult times. Join us for this series every Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. Well, we're ascending the steps going into the ancient city of Jerusalem. We're joining the pilgrims who have come from a extended an extended period of exile. They have made their journey while reflecting on the judgment of God and the great mercies of God, reflecting on the discipline of God that they have been experiencing, and at the same time reflecting on the devotion of God to his people and to his purposes worked out through his people. They arrive in the uh, city of Jerusalem. They begin to make their way toward uh, the temple, and they are ascending these steps, 15 of them. And the tradition is that on each step, they would sing one of these psalms of ascent, one of these songs. And we're nearing the top. We are five psalms away from reaching that ground where on the heights they can see into the temple complex. And though it is in ruins and in need of repair, though there is much work to be done that will be led by Nehemiah and Ezra and others opposed by Sanballat and Tobiah and others, there is in this time as they have arrived back as the pilgrims from exile, there is in this time a sense of great joy and delight. They reflect on themselves and their condition. They reflect on their God and his goodness and grace. And we come tonight to Psalm 130. And this psalm is about us and our condition and about God and his goodness. What do we know about ourselves? What do we know about our God? Those are the two questions upon which I want all of us to be reflecting tonight. What do I know about myself? And what do I know about the God who loves me and has given himself for me in and through the greatest gift ever given, the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? So pray with me as we prepare our hearts to receive the grace and goodness that comes to us from the Word of God. Well, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. 
This psalm can be separated into two sections, uh, separated into two sections for our analysis and for our observations coming from this psalm. It is not two psalms, it is one psalm, so there is a unity in this psalm as there is in all the psalms. The first four verses are about our sin and God's mercy. And verses five through eight are about our hope and God's grace. And in both sections, there are two components. What do we know about ourselves? What do we know about our God? So let's look first at the first section, verses one through four, our sin and God's mercy. So what is it that we know about ourselves? Well, what we know about ourselves, first of all, is that if we walk away from God and wander into paths of our own pursuing, if we profess to be the people of God, remember these Psalms are prayers that are offered to God by those who profess to be his people. Now these Psalms have a little message for the world at large, except to call them to surrender their lives to God, to submit their lives to his absolute and total, his loving and gracious authority. These Psalms are for God's people. And the situation here is not just for them, but for you and me, we can in the midst of a world that is ruled over by Satan, that operates by appealing to our fleshly desires and interest and loves and loyalty, uh, even good things, we can turn those good things into devilish and demonic things. We can make them into idols that consume our time and our energy and our resources. We can pursue good things that are not God things, and our hearts can be led astray from God. We can wander away from God. Just like the alcoholic who never intended to be an alcoholic. He just wanted to drink a little and then the alcohol got him or the addict who just wanted to experiment with what it felt like to smoke a joint of marijuana and before he knew it he was addicted. So it is with us. We we don't really in many situations, we don't see how we got so far away from God. How did we get here? I can't count the number of times in my life in ministry that I've heard people say that to me. How did I get here? I never intended to get here. I'm so far removed from God, so far removed from his people. We can find ourselves in the depths of despair encompassed about by a depressive darkness that we cannot understand, cannot comprehend, for which we look for all kinds of explanations in the physical world, in the mental world, in the emotional world, when the, when the answer is found in Scripture. Here are people who have physically been removed from what was familiar to them. They have been emotionally removed from what was predictable for them. They have been mentally removed from what sustained them and gave them strength, and they have found themselves in the midst of a depressive kind of despair. They are 
they're in the pits. They are in the depths. And they pray, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Now, not only are they pleading out of their situation, this is who they are and this is where they are, and they got there, we can get there. Being in the, what John Bunyan calls the slough of despond, encompassed about by darkness that we can't explain and understand, beset by despair that is robbing us of joy and happiness and even peace of mind but they know to whom to turn. They're pleading, not with themselves. They're not pleading with someone else to give them the explanation. These are pilgrims on their face before God, lifting up their hands to God, perhaps even opening their hands to God. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Twice here. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now that's interesting because here they are at some distant from God. Here they are in the slough of despond. Here they are encompassed about by despair. Here, here they are helpless and hopeless and they plead with God. And what do they seek? They seek mercy. Uh, they know that their situation is driven by spiritual darkness. They know that their situation is due to sin. They are separated from God. And they plead with God to give them mercy. Uh, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. God is gracious to us. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, and what we deserve is his judgment, and his judgment that would exclude any of us from his presence and his peace and his power. His judgment upon any of us would be right. And when we see who we are in the light of who God is, and we see that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love when we see that. And we understand ourselves at the very depths of who we are. We don't plead for anything else but what the psalmist is pleading for. He pleads for mercy. And he pleads for mercy from God because... In the midst of his situation, he not only knows about who he is, he knows about God. Now, what he knows about God is the same thing we know about God. Verse 3. This is the first thing he knows about God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God who knows everything there is to know about us. If, if, God, if God marked every little peccadillo, every little sin, who can stand? Who stands a chance in the presence of a holy and righteous and just God? 
And yet God, God does not mark our iniquities because if you belong to God, God has taken your iniquities and placed them on Jesus at the cross. And Jesus has borne the punishment for your sins and your transgressions and your iniquities. Jesus has borne that on the cross for you and your sins are not marked against you because they were born by the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us can stand in the presence of a holy God as sinners. We would receive what we deserve. We would receive his justice, which would mean that we would receive his wrath. This is what we know about God. He does not mark our sins. If he did, we couldn't stand. This is the second thing we know about our God. And, and, and listen to how the psalmist says it in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness should never be assumed. Forgiveness should never be something upon which we presume. Oh, I've sinned. God will forgive me because he loves me. Well, those are true words, but that is a complete misunderstanding of God's righteousness and God's justice and God's holiness in the light of the deserved wrath of God in our sin. That's a failure to understand the character and the quality of the intention of God in loving us. That's presuming upon his love. With God, there is forgiveness. You know what that means? That means that God, through his grace and mercy, he lifts up our sins from us. He takes them as far as the east is from the west. He casts them deeper than the depths of the sea. He removes them from us. Not only does he remove our sins, but he removes all the guilt that is associated with our sin. And what's our response? And this is what he says. Listen to this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Why doesn't he say that you may be loved? That you may be feared. That we may stand in awe, overwhelmed to the point of trembling in the presence of a God so great and so good, so gracious and so kind. We don't fear God because he is abusive. We don't fear God because there's a disconnect between what he says and what he does. We don't fear God because we're so afraid of him that he will treat us as our sins deserve. We fear God because we've never met or known anyone like this God. We do stand in awe of him. I just finished reading a novel. I'm trying to get back into reading some novels. I really want to go back and read all of the classic fiction literature that I read when I was in high school and college and just have not gone back to them in years. But I just finished reading uh, Pat Conroy's newest novel, The Lords of Discipline. It's about... uh, a military institute. He he tries to, 
he tries to uh, make it as if uh, we don't know where it is, but it's located in Charleston, South Carolina, so you go figure. He's a student at the Institute. The main character is a student at the Institute, which obviously is somewhat autobiographical for Convoy. And at the Institute, there is the general, the, the man, and under him is the commander who basically runs the Institute. And they're both men to be feared, but the commander, as the story unfolds, the commander is corrupt. He's corrupt to the core. What he says and how he lives are so disjointed. He, he speaks of integrity and honesty and values and valor and courage and he's anything but that. The students fear him because he is prone to act in ways that are cruel and unkind. But then the commander, they fear him too. But he shows up at night in the barracks. He, he, he's commanding and demanding, but he's caring as well. They fear him, but they fear him out of this awareness that he, he is who he says he is. He doesn't have the highest position at the Institute, but he has the full adulation and love and respect and admiration of all the cadets. Uh, he is the one who displays the character of a godly man who is feared. Not because of what can be done to you if you don't fear him like with the general, but because of the way there is this consistency in his character, this integrity in his life. This is God. We fear him because we know how he should treat us, but we see and understand and know how he has treated us and loved us. This is who we are. This is who he is as our God. Now let's go to the second half of this psalm. The second half of this psalm is about uh, God's, our hope and God's grace. Our hope and God's grace. What do we know about ourselves, according to this psalm, well, this section of the psalm. We know that we wait for the Lord because of his mercy to us and his kindness to us. Look at verse five. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. Hope is real. Hope is active. Hope is alive. Hope is faithful. Hope is focused on God, the God of the future who holds everything in his hand. And, and to wait on him in hope is not to sit back and do nothing. It is to seek to be faithful. That's the wait, W-E-I-G-H-T, of the word wait, W-A-I-T. We wait upon the Lord, which means we're active in what he has called us to be and do as his people. I wait for the Lord, my soul, that is the essence of who I am, waits for the Lord. 
My soul, verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. That phrase that is repeated, that's the Hebrew way of emphasizing something. This repetition that happens throughout the Old Testament. And the image here is the watchman on the wall. The, the cities in those days had walls around them to protect the citizenry inside the city and to protect the city from outside forces entering into the city. And every night as the sun would set and darkness would begin to rise at every corner of the city, there would be a watchman. There was a watchtower on top of the wall and the watchman for the night would enter that watchtower and his job was to stay awake and look across the landscape, north, south, east, and west, looking every direction across the landscape and looking for any enemies that might be coming. It was a very necessary job. It was a very difficult and demanding job. It was a very responsible job. And those who did this job not only had to fight sleep, I'm sure, but they had to fight illusions that they might see during the night that were not real. They longed for the dawn. They longed to see the sun come up in the morning. And sometimes you and I find ourselves, don't we, in those dark nights? And those dark nights are hard. Uh, they seem that they'll never go away, but during those dark nights of the soul, we wait. We trust God because we understand something about who we are. We wait in hope and we wait on God and God alone. He is our refuge and our strength. He is our help and our shield. He is our fortress and our strong tower. He is the light in our darkness. We wait, we wait through the long nights. We wait for God alone because of what we know about our God. Verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. That phrase steadfast love is the one Hebrew word in the Old Testament that reaches way, way up here. To, in, to encapsulate the essence of who God is. It is a three-character Hebrew word, hesed. And we can't even translate it into English. We don't have enough words because it gets to the core character of God as loving, merciful, gracious, kind, compassionate, caring, holy, righteous, just, faithful, on and on. Uh, to put it in one sentence, our God is everything we ever need and everything we could ever desire. Wait for the Lord because with the Lord is steadfast love. We know that about our God. Secondly, we know that with our God, there is plentiful redemption. This doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that God redeems his people more than once. It means that his redemption is like pouring water in a cup that keeps on flowing over and flowing over and flowing over, and there's no end to the supply. God's 
redemption, his rescue of us, rescues us to such an extent that the overflow of the rescue is always like fresh water flowing over our lives and washing us and renewing us and refreshing us, reminding us that we've been redeemed by a great and gracious, a majestic and mighty God. With God, there's plentiful redemption. And thirdly, what we know about God is that not only is there with him steadfast love and plentiful redemption, redemption, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Israel had wandered far away from God. Israel had tasted the judgment of God. Israel had known the severity of God's judgment. But you can never get so far away from God that he can't reach you. You can never live so long in sin and so hardened against God that he cannot save you. What is it that you can do to keep God from loving you as his child and coming to you with his steadfast love, his plentiful redemption, and his grace that covers your sin? What we know about ourselves is that we're sinners. What we know about our God is that he loves, seeks, and saves sinners. What we know about ourselves is that we can turn away from God. What we know about our God is that he does not turn away from us. What we know about ourselves is that we deserve his judgment. What we know about our God is that he brings his mercy. Rejoice in the goodness and the grace, the mercy and the kindness of our God, to whom be praise, honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, have a great night or great afternoon or whenever you're listening to this. Um, Why don't you reach out to somebody and tell them about these teaching times? Uh, Share with them. You may have a lost neighbor or friend or family member. You may find it difficult to witness to them, but how difficult is is it to say to them, Our pastor is teaching through the Psalms uh, of Ascent, and I don't know really that much about them except what he's told me, but it's uh, something I'd like you to listen to. Um, Use this as an outreach tool. Would you? Thank you. I'll talk to you next week.